I'm Cody Commers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. Right now, over the course of the next couple weeks, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 billion people will tune into the same event. This event is not a geopolitical one. Governmental regimes will not be decided based on its outcome. It's not an economic one either. The winner will be financially compensated, but not really in any way that will meaningfully affect the people of that country. National boundaries will not be redrawn as a result of this conflict. Ultimately, what it comes down to is 22 men, a ball, and who can put it in the opponent's net the most times. This is, of course, the World Cup. I don't say this as someone who thinks the World Cup isn't important. I think it's fantastically important, and I count down to it every four years, starting approximately three days after the final game. But many people believe that because it's a game, because it doesn't have overt real-world implications, that the World Cup somehow doesn't matter. Some people believe that because it's a certain kind of game, namely one in which Europeans are usually dominant, not Americans, that it doesn't matter. But it does matter. And the reason it matters is that there's no other event in the world that quite so many people from quite so many walks of life get worked up about. An election, a TV show, the publication of a book, a Nobel Prize, none of these things can compete with the sheer volume of interest generated by the World Cup. It may be a fiction, but it is one that a large proportion of the planet has bought into. I think this dynamic is useful to pay attention to because this is also the way games work more generally. The points aren't real in any sense but the number on the scoreboard. Yet people live and die by whether their team's number is bigger than their opponent's. They dedicate a large portion of their leisure time to following the accumulation of these points. Arguably, these kind of games are what humanity in aggregate cares about most. And this makes for a sort of paradox. Even though they don't have meaningful stakes outside the arena, games are designed to elicit concentrated doses of meaningful engagement. When you're into a game, nothing feels like it matters quite as much as the outcome of that match. And a defensible definition of a game is an event or set of actions which is fundamentally meaningless, but to which we have ascribed great meaning. More specifically, what this is, is the process of gamification. And the downsides of gamification is the topic of a recent book by my guest today, Adrian Hahn. Adrian is a game developer and CEO of a gaming company, Sick to Start. His best-known game is Zombies Run, an app which incites runners to move faster by overlaying a plot of apocalyptic escape on their movements in the real world. It has been downloaded more than 10 million times. Adrian is an expert on the power of gamification, but his book is all about taking a skeptical look at how This kind of gamification has infiltrated our everyday lives. At the heart of Adrian's observations is a kind of tension, and I've come to think of this tension as the double-edged sword of gamification. So by assigning points to vocabulary learning or tracking the number of steps you've taken in a given day, gamification is able to make trivial, mundane actions, which we want to engage in for good principled reasons but don't find particularly appealing, and imbue these actions with meaning. This in turn gives us the motivation to accomplish those actions at a more efficient rate than we otherwise would. Where this goes wrong, though, 
is when the game itself, the point system, the badges, the leaderboard, becomes more meaningful than the original reason for wanting to do it in the first place. When we care more about the fictional story in a way that starts taking away from the real things we actually care about, that's when gamification becomes a problem. The thrust of Adrian's book is that more and more companies are using the powerful techniques of gamification to get us to engage in their products far longer and in different ways than we might initially intend to. In other words, it's commonplace for products and apps to be designed to exploit the most vulnerable aspects of our psychology. So the psychological dynamics of games are increasingly becoming a part of our everyday lives, and we need people like Adrian Hahn to help us understand how they work. His new book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. It's out now. And if you still aren't convinced that games matter, just look at the World Cup. Qatar spent $220 billion. They could have bought Twitter five times over just to host it. Why? Not because they're going to recoup that money, but because it puts them right in the crosshairs of the world's attention. From Ecuador to Japan to Germany to Cameroon to Serbia to Brazil to even a large part of the United States, everyone will be watching. And when that many people buy into the stakes of a game, there's bound to be real-world consequences. If you enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can always send me a note at cody at themeaninglab.com. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Adrian Hahn. Adrian Hahn, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks. So I think I want to start off talking about one of the defining elements of games, which is clarity of value. And so in the real world, there are all these competing values and these ways of determining uh, whether you're, what you're doing is right. And that's totally different in games. In games, you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, exactly what progress looks like. Sure, certainly that's not true of, of all games, but for most games, that's the case. Um, so can you say a little bit about how that plays out in terms of games and gamification? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that if you think about the most basic games like Pong or, you know, Tetris or whatever, part of the way the game tells you what it wants you to be doing is through points and through levels and badges and through lives and that sort of thing. And so you know that when you're playing Space Invaders, the point is not to go and get shot immediately, it's to go and shoot the other invaders. And so we have the score um, to make that clear. Uh, of course, you can play Space Invaders in another way. You can you can do whatever you want, but uh, the game is communicating to you what you're supposed to be doing. And so um, it is possible to to have games with more or fewer of those markers like you know achievements and like badges and, and levels and points but um they can be really useful in terms of showing progress and, and just telling people what to do i think um the what what's happened with gamification is that non-game applications like education health and fitness you know politics have taken those 
ways of feeding back um, what they want the user to do and applied them to different uh, ends. So, for example, if you are a health and fitness app and you want users to run more, then you might give them more points every time they run. And so that's seen as a good thing. Yeah, and so what do you think some of the consequences are of confusing this this uh, clarity of value, right? Um, this is a point that you, you make in the book um, that, that I really like, which is about how life doesn't always give you um, anything that looks like, you know, something that you could apply this, this very simple clarity to. I think, I, you know, I think that gamification simplifies activities uh, and, and these sorts of mechanics simplify activities. You know, anytime you put a score or, you know, some sort of simple measure onto something, then, then you're saying, okay, this is all I really care about. So for instance, again, with like a running app, uh, you might say, okay, wh- what I want to reward, what I make most apparent in the user interface when you open up this running app is how many days in a row you've run. And you can say, well, that that sort of like correlates maybe with fitness. I mean, if someone runs every day, they're probably more fit uh, than, than someone who, who runs less. Um, but then, of course, uh, if you know about running, if you know about fitness, uh, at a certain point, you probably go and get ill and you need rest days. And that simple measure of just how many days in a row you've run becomes inadequate to express um, what certainly the user probably wants to get out of this, which is not merely to run a lot, but just to become healthier and avoid you know, hurting themselves. So um, it is. it can be useful, I think, for very well-defined activities where the designer of the gamification um, can, I was going to say empathize, I don't think that's the right word, but but can really sort of have the interest aligned with what most users will want to do, then it can work as a kind of training wheels. Um, But the danger is that usually the design of gamification has more, has different incentives um, to, to uh, for, for the user's behavior to end up in a different place. And so in the best case scenario, gamification does have, uh, you know, the, the potential to have really good effects. So uh, there's something really powerful psychologically about games, of course. And I guess just to put my own spin on it, the way I would sort of frame it is that if you were to create the simplest mind possible, you would have three ingredients. You'd have goals, actions, and beliefs. That's what you uh, what you want, what you can do, and what you know. And so in a game, you know, or in a gamified scenario, the designer can really fine-tune these things so they're all working in exactly the way that she wants. And this has a lot of positive things like being able to sort of level up in a way where your skills match the the challenges that you're going to have. And so that's kind of the best case scenario for for games and gamification. Um, but in general, uh, real life doesn't really work like that. We often encou- uh, encounter challenges that are they're too hard for us, or we don't really understand what's happening. Um, so where does this uh, start to go wrong once we have conflicting incentives uh, and that sort of stuff like you're talking about? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because some of the pushback I get on the book is, well, I mean, 
what is wrong with someone choosing to download an app that uh, promises to help them lose weight, you know, or promises to help them, you know, learn a musical instrument or, for instance, download Duolingo and learn, you know, another language. And, you know, surely it's really up to them to understand what their incentives are and to do the research and understand how the app works. Um because they could read reviews, they could they could sort of look into into how the app operates and how other people have found it. I think the problem that I think there's basically two problems. One is that um, creators of apps have often wildly different incentives to to users. Uh, the user might want to go and learn Japanese. Uh, the creator might want to help them learn Japanese, but they mostly want to just go and make lots of money. And the way they make money is by maximizing engagement, which is just getting them to use the app more and to subscribe to the app. And the longer you keep people using the app through mechanisms like streaks and points and leaderboards and so on, the more money you're going to make. So it doesn't really matter whether the user actually ends up learning Japanese or French. What matters really is that they just keep on using the app. Um, And you might think, well, surely if they are using Duolingo, then they are learning more French than they would be if they weren't losing, using Duolingo. And that might actually be the case, but I think that this is where a lot of the studies kind of fall down because they compare using, say, Duolingo or some gamified intervention to no intervention whatsoever. And I think the real comparison should be using Duolingo to some other language learning method um, because otherwise it's just you know, like we're comparing, you know, I I don't think it's interesting. I think the other angle is just also that there's a knowledge asymmetry in terms of what the user knows about how the app works and what the creator knows about how the app works. And the user is just downloading the app and they read the marketing and the advertising. They're like, wow, look at this free app. I'm going to learn French or I'm going to work out more, that sort of thing. And uh, they think I'm in control. And of course, you know, everything's telling me it's going to be good for me. And all these gamified elements are also good for me because games are nice. Whereas obviously, um, maybe if they knew that it didn't work as well for other users or other users after they use it for six months were kind of dissatisfied, then they wouldn't wouldn't use it. So, I mean, that's a kind of consumer protection thing, really. It's, it's less about, you know, gamification in general. It's true of anything else. But I think for something new, like gamification, it is more of a problem. Let me try and pick up on that. So one of the kind of ways that in my own mind I was summarizing your work as I was reading it was that there's this double-edged sword to gamification. And it has to do with altering the landscape of meaning uh, of our actions And so the way gamification works, I guess, is that it's able to sort of overlay meaning on top of activities that would otherwise feel trivial or not that exciting or kind of hard to motivate oneself to do. So, you know, learning vocab words isn't very fun. Enter Duolingo. Uh, You know, that's what they're selling you is essentially a way that incentivizes your progress through that not very fun process of learning uh, those necessary vocab words. And so the problem that you're identifying, uh, to kind of put my own frame around it, is meaning creep, 
like essentially the gamified definition of what's meaningful starts to become more urgent and more important than the activity that you were doing in the first place. So, you know, you start to care more about your streak in Duolingo than actually learning French or whatever it is. Does that, yeah, does that sound I mean, right to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that that's kind of similar to Goodhart's law where, you know, you're sort of measuring, you know, particular, you know, you're, you're, you're using a proxy for something like you're measuring, you know, number of days you've used Duolingo and suddenly um, all you care about, uh, suddenly all the app cares about is, is the number of days you're using using it and and i think that it, it's you know i i think gamification provides this kind of allure of simplicity right because we have so many choices that we can make all the time and it is nice i think for for some people to, and i don't mean that in a pejorative way it's nice for me as well to 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 um have an app that says okay if you want to do this all you need to do is make this number go up and make this bar fill up and um, and I guess my, my sort of argument in the book is that that is literally how video games work, right? You know, the games are designed um, so that the progress in the game kind of matches exactly the score. Whereas in real life, uh, real life is, is more complicated than that. And uh, usually more, we have different kinds of uh, objectives and also, um, it's just a lot harder. I mean, when I say it's a lot harder, it's a lot harder to learn a language than it is to play Assassin's Creed, you know, or, or Fortnite. Um, might not seem like it, but it definitely is. <laughs> yeah, I think there's another problem here, which is about the kinds of data that we can collect. And this is something you touch on a lot in the book. And the way you talk about it reminds me of this paper that I really like by an anthropologist named Nick Siever. And Siever studies tech companies like Spotify and the engineers who create recommender systems, the algorithms behind uh, those systems, and how they come to understand their users. And so his argument is that they can only understand their users through the data that they can collect. And, you know, it's this allusion to a, a famous book called Seeing Like a State. And the idea is that all large institutions work like this. You know, you have to take the complex experience of individuals and understand it in a way that can be uniformly applied across the whole population. And then, uh, you know, so as, as we're talking about with, with gamification, what this means is that you're optimizing things that you can measure. And if you can measure it, you can gamify it, and you can do it at scale. But you can't optimize and gamify what you can't measure. So things like the number of vocab words you can correctly identify are things that you can measure. The, number, the, the amount of hours, uh, number of hours that you've spent on, a, on an app or a platform, you can measure. But you know, overall well-being, uh, how proficient you are in French, sort of these much more nebulous concepts, you can't directly measure them. And so I, I think that's, that's the kind of thing where gamification is creating this shortcut between what we can measure and the outcomes that we actually care about. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, seeing like a state is really good on this. The, you know, the way I describe it in the book is through the lens of scale. I think this is what, you know, Silicon Valley is obsessed with, you know, things are only worth doing if you can scale them to a million people, a billion people. And so if you want to gamify something and make a billion dollars, then you can't very well do that if, if a human needs to look at every result every time. And so what you end up with is just 
a, a gamification of the things we can measure easily and automatically. And so that's really selective. I mean, it, you know, for my app, for Zombies Run, the game that I make, we, we based it around the information that we know smartphones can gather, which is you know, GPS traces and speed and direction and that sort of thing. And so what ends up being gamified is what is measurable by um, smartphones because everyone's got a smartphone. Um, of course, there are other things you can gamify. If you have an application, you can gather data on what that application um, uh, tracks. So Twitter technically, you know, more, more Twitter sort of gamifies communication, you know, because it is collecting people's attention and, and clicks. I think, though, well, and, and, and I would sort of go and add on to that, the way that I sort of compare this, because people will always go and say, hey, Adrian, but hasn't there been gamification for like 200 years? Checkmate. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm aware that the people have used, you know, ideas like badges and leaderboards for, for a long time. You know, when I was a kid, we used to get um, these patches uh, awarded to us for swimming. And if we could swim, you know, 50 meters in one go or 100 meters in one go, then we get the patch. And, um, you know, of course, you know, we don't have a 100 meter long pool. So you have to go and pause at each end of the pool. And the question is, well, how long are you allowed to pause for? Right. If I'm just hanging out there for 30 seconds and I'm kind of cheating. But if I go and touch it for like half a second, it's probably okay. And you could imagine some complicated, you know, computer vision setup, you know, some sort of like a band to sort of go and see whether someone's cheating or not. Or you can just have a human sitting there just checking whether it's working well or not, or whether the kid's drowning. And that is a that's gamification, but it's not being done at scale. Um I will say that I think that where gamification is unique compared to simply just tracking data and saying you you did uh 500 steps tomorrow today you should do 600 steps tomorrow is its use of aesthetics from um generally video games you know i mean you could say board games as well but video games are more popular and so what i mean by that is that i think there's a reason why companies why apps why workplaces use things that look like things from video games right they, they don't have to do that they could invent new words if they wanted to um but instead they say achievements they say badges they have leaderboards and they have xp duolingo has xp i mean i i don't think that people really knew what xp was until like 20 years ago um experience points and so that's kind of interesting to me that's that's what's really new along with the technology and the scale So you mentioned your own app um, at the at the front of that, and I want to start to incorporate a little bit more of your own personal experience, and I want to kind of get at it by a, a point that you were making in the book, which is you had this line, uh, you know, and for me as someone with a background in experimental psychology, you might think that like, well, psychology could have something to offer games, and then. You know, because at the at the at a face value, they're they're kind of the same thing. You have people in this contrived artificial situation, and they try and predict how they're going to act. But then, you know, in your book, you say the number of game designers who consult psychological research, you know, to your knowledge, is zero. So I kind of want to explore this by you know looking at your own experience. You studied 
experimental psychology as an undergrad at Cambridge, and then uh, started a PhD in neuroscience at Oxford, left after the first year. So can you say a little bit about what made you feel like you weren't going down the right path, and then how that kind of played out for you um, in, your, in, your, in your career? Uh, absolutely. You know, I, 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 I want to say just before I get onto that, that like, I did get a bit of pushback from, from a couple of people, not from the games industry, from the tech industry. And they said, well, actually, the, you know, we have some people who, who do have psychology textbooks. And I, I did, I replied saying, well, they might have psychology textbooks. I'm not sure how they're using the psychology textbooks um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the uh, computer science textbooks and product management textbooks, you know, use science in an interesting way. Uh, but we can do back onto that. So, for for me, um, you know, I started my undergrad at Cambridge, um, thinking that I would get into molecular biology and genetics. Actually, I did not. That I did not have an existing uh, interest in psychology or neuroscience. And um, to be perfectly honest, I just found <laughs> genetics and molecular biology really boring. Um, and that's not a knock on anyone who, who does that. It, it just seemed like it was a, a ton of like memorization. Whereas learning about uh, experimental psychology um, was just just spoke to something to me. I just found it absolutely fascinating. And I love the experiments. It, you know, it wasn't it it was a combination of the kind of empirical and the theoretical. Um, and I think that's actually something almost game-like actually about some of the experiments that you do. I remember um, when I was in San Diego for a summer, we were trying to put together some experiments to study synesthesia. And um, it, it was basically like coding like a video game, like a really boring video game. But, but you know, that, that, that's it, the key. That's the key difference is that psychology yeah. experiments are games. They're just the yeah. world's most boring games. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and, and so that's kind of, that is a thing that, that, that's sort of interesting to me. I, I think that there's, there's more, I know I sort of rubbish in the book, but there was actually from a technical point of view, that's probably more in common than people might think. Um, so I started that then, um, I think, yeah, neuroscience is just something that, that, um, you know, extended from that, you know, Cambridge had a really good program in it. Um, and I think, you know, back in 2000, it was just so exciting, you know, the new tools are being developed, um, and the questions are being answered. There's some really great, great groups. Um, I started a PhD at Oxford, uh, and we were, well, it was a it was a special kind of PhD. The first year was kind of uh, you you rotate through three different labs, um, and do the equivalent of a master's in one year, um, and you you would try and see whether you fit any of the labs. And there was one lab which I quite liked, and and they were doing some research on uh, visual processing in mice, which I was going to start a PhD in. Uh, I felt very bad when I when I told them that I was going to leave. Um, but actually, you know, at the same time I was working on in my spare time, which I didn't have that much of, I was working on an alternate reality game. And, uh, I think the moment when I decided to, to do that full time was I, I was in a lab and someone, uh, some technician was having a go at me for using her pipette. And I was like, this is just, <laughs> this is just horrible. Um, you know, and, and so I was like, I, I, actually don't really want to do this um 
and uh, left to to make games. And and sort of returning to the sort of where we started, um, you know, if you go to games conferences and you read game design books, there will always be some mention of like a variable you know, ratio of rewards. They'll, they'll talk about Skinner boxes. They'll talk about, you know, addiction, addiction by design. There's always this kind of cursory, um, you know, chat about casinos and things. But that's it, really. Um, I, I, you know, and and the, which is not to say that I don't think that um, game designers don't implement ideas from, or, or concepts from psychology. It's more just, that game design and tech, uh, the tech world, Silicon Valley as a whole, the way it's operating is more like just like a million companies um, doing a million different A/B tests, just trying different things. And if something works, then they go or copy it, basically. And so it's almost like just evolution. You know, it's just natural selection. And um, I don't think there's a lot of uh, thought thought. For most companies, I'm not going to say that at all because I don't know about every company, but um, it's not something I've seen. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me and I really appreciate it like a lot, but even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Let's maybe go back to uh, one thing that you mentioned, which is Twitter as a form of gamification. And this is one of the places where I feel like gamification is is most pernicious for some of the reasons that that we've been talking about, uh, and that's through the gamification of discourse. And so, usually, when we communicate with one another, the point is to convey some sort of belief that you actually hold, or to express something that you're feeling. Uh, but you're trying to get someone else to understand your point of view in some way. But on Twitter, because of the reward feedback, it's no longer about saying what you mean or trying to 
communicate effectively necessarily. It becomes about how many points you can score by saying something inflammatory. Then you get a bunch of likes and retweets. Your follower count goes up. A famous person replies to uh, you know your idea. And so I think your critique really lands here for cases like this where we've got these massively influential institutions and we're taking the original meaning and context of what we're doing, which is communicating, discourse, whatever you want to call it, and then applying this new gamified incentive structure, which fundamentally changes the way we're doing the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I see that in my own behavior on Twitter, honestly, like it, it, it is, um, you know, I, and I don't think it's just because, I mean, it's exciting when you have a tweet that goes viral and I'm trying to describe why I think it's exciting. I, I suppose it, uh, you, you, you can click on your notifications tab and you can see the likes number and the retweets number go up and you can think, wow, like I, I said something funny. People, real people think I'm funny or real people think I said something smart and, and, um, uh, you know, if you compare your different tweets, you'll say, well, this one got 10 times as much engagement as the other one. So I'm just going to do more of that because now you could say, well, that's just because of the gamification. If you took away the gamification, it wouldn't be there. I- I'm not so sure. You know, I think that people, when they post things to Twitter, then they want to believe that it's worth doing that. And people are listening and valuing what they say. And so even if you didn't have the notification tab and you didn't have like numbers and you didn't have retweet numbers, you would still be able to tell roughly, you know, um, how much engagement you're getting. But it would it would be less immediate. You know, you, you could imagine ways where the feedback was less immediate and less kind of visual. Um, and, you know, there's been there have been journalists who have looked into this probably more anecdotally but i i think there's one where they looked at uh a man who ended up going to the january 6 you know insurrection and they looked at it the history of his they talked to him they the history of his facebook posts and he would just be posting about pretty innocuous stuff and getting zero engagement on that and then one day he says well i think for instance, I think you know Biden, you know, is is illegitimate, and suddenly there's like fifty likes. It's like, wow, people like that take. I guess I'll just keep on saying more of that, right? And um, I, I keep on trying to like think of analogies where someone is just shouting this in like some public square, and then he, he's just shouting random stuff, and no one cares. And then he shouts one thing, which where people care, and everyone gives him a thumbs up. But of course, you know that sort of falls down because then you have on Facebook and Twitter, at least, you know, the kind of algorithmic boosting. So if something gets a lot of likes and they show it to more people. And so I think without the algorithmic boosting, maybe uh, the feedback wouldn't be so extreme. And that's, so, so it's not just a gamification, but it is a gamification in combination with the boosting that is encouraging people to take, uh, to change the way they communicate or even to change their beliefs, you know, because I think that if this guy who, who, you know, was posting about innocuous stuff and then ends up posting just obsessively about January 6th, um, I, I don't know whether it'd be true to go and say, well, he was just doing it for the likes. I mean, by the time he gets to Washington, D.C., he probably believes it to some extent. So that, that touches on something that you said in the book, which I really like, which is this sort of one-line test of bad gamification slash bad games. And that is, would, 
that is, would you still do it even if you turned off the points? And so in this case, with the communication on Facebook and Twitter and that sort of stuff, clearly the kinds of messages this individual felt were worth sending uh, are tied to the points that he was getting for. And if you turned off that point system, he would be talking about something very differently, or at least at a, a very different frequency. And, um, you know, so the, the point of including these measures of progress, like levels, badges, and points, is to get you to do whatever you are trying to do a little bit more consistently or a little bit more effectively. Uh, and that kind of seems to be an overriding principle to a lot of what we've talked about. Are there any other kinds of tests of, of bad gamification um, that, that you think are, are especially applicable here? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I notice it in... I, I don't know whether there's anything that is quite as elegant as, as that one, but uh, I, I sort of try to look at when I, you know, when I get notifications on my Apple Watch, or when I see other people get notifications or get get messages from their gamified applications. Um, I, I think it comes out like I think you can look at your own reaction to it and to see whether you're irritated or not. Honestly, like you know, I I get a notification every month from my Apple Watch saying, um, you know this is your November challenge, this is your December challenge. Uh, you should go and exercise for, you know, over 4,000 minutes during this month in order to beat your last, you know, goal. I'm like, I, I don't, but I don't actually want to do that, right? You're, you're telling me what I want to do. And so I, I think that one judgment you could make is saying, okay, it is one thing to be measuring what the user is doing anyway as they play a game or as they run. It's another thing when you are actively interrupting that user's experience or that user's day and saying, okay, now you should do this now. Um, my partner's mom uh, <laughs> is using Duolingo and she uh, gets these XP happy hour notifications on her phone. I'm allowed to tell this story because uh, I did ask permission. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, they just appear on the phone. And so for the next hour, uh, you get double XP uh, for learning, you know, vocabulary. And it's just, I mean, when you think about it, it, I mean, these notifications do not come like at the same time every day, every week. I mean, they're, they're a bit, little bit random, you know, they're, they're variable. Um, and as soon as she gets a notification and, and this goes for a lot of users, you know, she's just off for like an hour, just, you know, just, just playing this to the kind of like ignoring everything else. And you think this can't possibly be in her interests, right? I mean, to the point where she's just ignoring everything else going on. Uh, it's probably not what she had in mind when she started deciding I want to learn French. Um, I think I think what is tricky is that app designers and experience designers have a really um I, I and I think this is almost like purposefully so they have such a thin idea of what uh value is 
I think they, that what they they think that what users value is what they do. Um, and so if they go and show a user a notification that you will get double XP in the next hour and a lot of users respond to that notification and they play the game more, they think, well, that's good. You know, they're happy, right? Because they're doing it. If they weren't happy, they wouldn't do it, which I think is just, I mean, it's ridiculous. So um, to sort of return to the original thing, I, I guess I'd say, like, I, I think that what, as a designer, you can know when this is happening, when when all you're doing is just trying to increase retention, right? Um, you're just trying to increase engagement. I would say as soon as you start doing that, you're probably going to start doing something wrong pretty quickly, actually. Um, and I think as a user, just notice whether you're annoyed or not when <laughs> when when the game asks or the app asks you to do something. I've heard you tell that story about your well, this partner before, and I'm curious since you got consent from her to tell it. Did <laughs> she feel? How did she feel about that post talk? When you pointed that out, I was like, "Well, that was kind of a strange thing to do." Was she like, "Oh, yeah, no, that totally was"? Or was like, "No, I fucking stand by my desire to gain double XP in this happy hour." I think it's somewhere in between. I didn't think she was like, get lost. And it certainly wasn't, oh my God, I didn't realize I, I will never do that again. It's more just like, well, that's just what I should do. Um, y- you know? And, and, and I think that it's, and I think that's probably the truth for most people, right? It's, it's not going to be the case that most people go and say, oh my God, I didn't realize Adrian, like you're correct. I am being played. Um, you know, uh, you know, and, and, this is where I think the scale argument comes in, where it's always possible for designers to go and say, "Well, you know what? Most people think it's fine, right? Most people, most people just do it and they don't, they don't, you know, mind it." And I just think, I guess, as a designer, I think that's kind of a really, you know, it's a really weak excuse. Um, you might as well try and design something where more people will like it. Um, I don't know though, like b- because. Frankly, even if she likes it, I don't think the people who know her like it. <laughs> you know, um, you know. So probably so also depends did... on how good she is at friends show. Well, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. But like, you know, I don't know. Like, if if we're doing this interview and you had a notification on your phone that said XP Happy Hour starts now, and you're like, okay, Adrian, sorry, I'm gonna have to go off for 15 minutes. I'd be like, you, and, and I said, hey, what do you think about that? And you said, I love it. I said, like, yeah. But it's so really annoying for me, so I don't. I don't think that's a good thing. It would illustrate um, your point so nicely, though. That you might, in <laughs> fact, love it, and it might actually uh, accord so well with your thesis that 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 it, it behooves everyone in this situation. Right, and, and 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 you know, and this is where it comes down to like, well, like, am I being paternalist? Right, am I just saying, well, I know what's better for you than you do, uh, and then you sort of come down to virtue ethics and, and or, or whatever. But like it, you know, but, but where I just, you know, I think the way I sort of get around it in, in the get in the book is I go and say, I think that if I were to go and talk to my partner's mom in five years time or in 10 years time, and I say, Hey, you're not playing Duolingo anymore because it's probably unlikely that she will be uh, by that point. I say, what do you think of that? I mean, do you think that was worthwhile? Do you, do you still know like French? <laughs> you know, do, do you think that was an interesting way of doing it? Um, now, I don't know, but I think you'd probably go and say, probably not, you know, because we know that there are more effective ways of learning a language than Duolingo, frankly. Um, and I would say, well, 
in that case, yeah, I think that she herself in the future with the benefit of more knowledge would agree with what someone who also has more knowledge now would say, which is like, yeah, this doesn't actually work. It's kind of annoying. But, you know, so you say that there's more effective ways to learn a language than Duolingo. And I would argue that pretty much any way of learning a language is more effective than Duolingo in terms of <laughs> the actual curriculum for learning the language. The only thing Duolingo does well is that it's so able to slot into your daily life but through this, you know, combination of, of, you know, notifications and different, you know, like here's your trajectory, here's, you know, your points, here's your little rewards and that sort of stuff. And that is the only thing that it has going for it because the curriculum is honestly garbage. Well, uh, so yeah, I, I, mean, I like, but so I like that's, that's the whole selling point of what they're doing is that they're able to, to give, to give that to you. So, I mean, like in a sense, uh, I think you know, like that, like that. That is the entire point of their platform, right? Well, I, you know, if I was going to be as generous as I possibly can to Duolingo, you know, th- what I've heard from language instructors who do this for a living is they say that it is quite good for learning vocabulary, right? Because at the end of the day, you're just going to be memorizing like lists of words, and if you're using flashcards, then then they're making slightly more interesting flashcards. But for more or less anything above that, it's not going to work that well. Um, And if Duolingo were to go and say, we are like a really fun way of learning vocabulary, then I think I would be okay with that. (laughs) You know, but they don't want to go and say that. They want to say, this is how you're going to learn French, right? Um, Which is not true. Uh, You know, if you want to learn French, you need to go and talk to people and you need to go and, you know, there are lots of different ways that we know of you know, immersion or whatever that will get you there. So I, you know, in some ways this is just a case of just like, you know, like misleading advertising. But I think that from a gamification point of view, it's a case where you can make something that works, that that seems so sticky, you know, that, that has people coming back so often that, that activity ends up overwhelming everything else that you do. And I, I and like as a writer, you know, I find this part of my argument, if I'm being honest, kind of like tricky to navigate. Because in some ways, what I want to say is I don't think gamification works, right? Um, for most as in, I don't think the application of points and badges and, and levels and so on um is really gonna get you there in the long term. On the other hand, uh well, don't people use Duolingo a lot, right? Um, and so I, maybe it does work. Can I hop in to make sure I understand that point? Um, yeah. So you're saying that, okay, the promise of gamification is that I can get you to do the important things you need to do for your goals, e.g. vocab learning, by giving you this kind of like, here's something that looks like a game. Uh, and yeah. you're ultimately going to reach your goals. And you're saying that for... Most domains, uh, and we can move away from language learning uh, since we've been talking about that, but for most yeah. domains, uh, that's actually not the case, that there's no way to have that kind of psychological shortcut of I'm going to make the trudgery of uh, improving at the low-level portions of it, the sort of pre-mastery phase of it, um, uh, more palatable, that genuinely gets you to a place resembling mastery. You'll get somewhere, but it won't actually be you can't truly avoid some aspect of trudgery of it. Is that is that is, is that what you're saying there? 
that, that that's i mean i think that's close i mean i i think that that it's weird because because I obviously make gamification, so I, I want to be able to say that I think Zombies Run works. I I guess that what I would say is I think the gamification is so much more specific to a certain audience and a certain set of skills, and um, because um, so it can work, but it cannot work on the scale that people want it to work at. Um, if that makes sense. So so I think you can say Duolingo does work for certain kinds of people on, on vocabulary, but it doesn't work on these other things. But moving away from Duolingo, I'd say Zombies Run, right? Zombies Run, we, we gamify running and we try and make it more exciting to do something that some people find quite tedious and painful by giving you this audio adventure when you're in a zombie apocalypse. Now, a lot of people say, I don't like zombies. So we've already lost like most of, you know, the world audience and other people are like well i don't like running to like you know uh audio i like music so we've lost them and other people will say well i don't like audio dramas because they sound really cheesy okay so we've lost them so the group gets smaller and smaller and smaller um and then but but and, and so actually the you know even though the people we have like 10 million people who play the game it's not like a billion people right you know and and so that is not yet, the, Adrian. Not yet. Not, not yet. But I, I would say the effective gamification, where you're going to make something not just like somewhat fun, but like really fun, um, is really specific to tasks and to audiences. And um, you know, there are examples of gamification which I think I really enjoyed. You know, uh, like dance dance revolution you know which is you know this arcade game and now i i don't that's dance dance revolution is not really a very good way of losing weight or becoming really fit because it's not actually that energetic but it's it is better than doing nothing right it's better than playing you know just sitting on your couch um but a lot of people think it's it looks silly and they don't like the music but it does work for some people really well and so i guess that's just another example of it can work but we just designers just keep on trying to scale it beyond its bounds and they end up making something rather than making something that's fun for some people they make something that's not fun for everyone or like vaguely fun it sounds like the argument you're making is a version of there are no easy ways to do hard (laughs) things if you really want to get in shape i mean you're gonna have to do something besides play dance dance revolution that can be a part of it uh if you want to learn a language dueling can be a a part of it but i mean there's no shortcut of just tricking yourself into having an easy time doing something that's fundamentally challenging no I, i i think you can do it but i think that you would need someone to to make a game just for you Mm, you know very localized right, scope right, right it would have to be really localized and the more localized you can make it the better the game is going to be and so like if i was a billionaire and and i said i i just really want to become like a really good runner i could just go and hire people to do like amazing like you know put me into some sort of movie or whatever and and and, and like we could probably make that fun if you gave me enough money um but uh for most people that's not going to be the case and so what um what is sad for me as a designer is that people are chasing these kind of really generic, you know, gamification solutions um, and just making really boring stuff that doesn't work when they could be making smaller solutions that actually do work for some people. And I think that comes back to to one of your earlier questions about like, 
oh, using the search from from you know psychology. It's like pe- people are looking for the one weird trick that will make them rich, and it's like that's not. I don't know. I don't think that exists really, apart from like casinos, I suppose. <laughs> um, and um, you know, games are so so much more kind of specific in how they're played. Um, and also audiences, I mean, the good news is that audiences can self-select for your game, right? So one of the, I think, challenges, honestly, about a lot of research is that, um, you know, people will study the effect of, you know, how effective Zombies Run is or, or, or any other kind of gamified app on just a random group of university students. And it's like, that's not, that's generally not how people find these apps. They self-select. So they see this thing, they think, wow, zombies, I like that. I'm going to go for it. And anyone who doesn't like zombies just completely ignores it. So that makes it also quite difficult to study what works and what doesn't work. It's very convenient then how your app has the two things that are required for participating in it. Interest in zombies and at least some kind (laughs) of motivation to run right there in the title. So maybe that's a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know that's that's a that's a really that's a really interesting i mean you know when we were talking about the name for the game um we had so many things and zombies run was one of the first ideas and and one of my least favorites because it because it just sounds utterly silly and and um but but it does i mean this comes well, running from fake zombies is a little inherently silly not in a bad way but it, it, it you know <laughs> it, it, it it's quite silly but i i think that this i mean I think that's, I never thought about it that way, but you, you want to tell people as much as you want to attract people to your um, game or idea, you, you want to make sure that people who won't like it don't bother downloading it because yeah. they're not going to like it. <laughs> you know, um, If we call it Adventure Run and the only thing inside it was zombies, then I think we'd probably have a bunch of annoyed people. <laughs> Adrian, you've been super generous with your time. And so I'll ask the... Uh final question here what are three books that have especially influenced you or or changed the way you think or you know that you'd recommend to other people Uh, i'm gonna recommend one first which is kind of gamey which is life a user's manual by george perrick um which was kind of written in this ulapu uh way um like uh just just a, a whole collection of different short stories that are interlinked and um you know the author famously you know would write stories without using letter e and that that sort of thing and you at first i thought this was kind of like not going to produce good literature but actually um the rules he set himself um resulted in something just astonishingly good and um and has a lot to say about life and and also about how to use rules to produce interesting art i recently just read a book called weavers scribes and kings by adam uh Podini. Um, and it is basically a tale, well, it's a nonfiction book about um the ancient Near East from about 3000 BC uh to to um zero. Uh and it's all from the te- cuneiform texts. And the reason why I found it fascinating is because I'm I'm always just interested in reading about normal people from the past, basically. Uh, and that's quite difficult because most of the writing you have is about like kings and and about about sort of famous people, and um, there's something about the everyday particularities which I find fascinating and really good fuel. Um, finally, uh, one of my favourite authors, science fiction authors, is Stanislaw Lem. I think he is um, certainly the funniest 
science fiction author. I think I like Douglas Adams, but sounds of them is just is just extremely funny, but very incredibly smart. Um, his book, uh, the Futurological Congress, has I think one of the best understandings of what virtual reality uh, will be like, which is to say, um, ultimately absolutely insane. Um, and but I most recently read a book called The Star Diaries, which is a, a bunch of short stories which are um, invariably extremely funny, but also very shocking and, and sad. And so I've not seen a writer like him of the kind of range that he has across nonfiction, fiction, science fiction. Um, you know, he's very interested in science. Actually, if you if you read the book Solaris, it's really all about a theory of knowledge more than about like aliens, honestly. So um, definitely worth looking at. That sounds really interesting. Uh, those are great recommendations. And uh, Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Adrian Hahn. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can always send me a note at cody at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab.